Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. All right, <clears throat> here we go. Man, I wish I had a nice head of hair like you. It, it, does, does your dad still have a full head of hair? <laughs> he does. He does. My, mine's turning gray, though, and he didn't get gray till he was 70. So I, I didn't get all the good genes from him. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. He's yeah. still alive? Your dad? Yeah, he's yeah he's in his 80s now. So, Is he in uh, Australia or where was he at? Uh, he's in D.C. Uh, so I grew up in D.C. And, okay uh, he, so yeah he moved right. into the house they live in the day after they got married and they haven't left since so yeah really i'm an east coast boy yeah are you serious so they would they buy the house for like nine thousand dollars or something they bought it yeah fucking nothing <laughs> 20k <laughs> and uh yeah they've just been sitting there for 50 plus 60 plus years i think yeah something like oh that. wow that, that's a oh so they've been married for that long too huh your yeah. mom and dad and yeah. they're still there they're still wow that's pretty cool Still pottering around, absolutely. <laughs> what What'd your dad do? Uh, my dad was an aeronautical engineer, so he worked on the space program back in the day, which oh. was pretty cool. And something I didn't find out about until I was much older in life. We were, I was like a teenager, and we're walking through the Air and Space Museum in uh, in Washington, and he's like, "Oh, I worked on that satellite, and I built the navigation system for that." And, Oh, the camera on the moon. I was the lead engineer. And I was like, wait, what? How am I what? just 14? How am I just finding out about this? So <laughs> he did some pretty cool stuff back in the day. And um, yeah, he was, he was, you know, an engineer, aeronautical engineer his whole life up in, you know, retired recently. Really? Okay. So you grew up in DC. What'd your mom do? Uh, my mom was an economist. Um, and then when, when we were born, she took care of us for a few years and then she went back into the workforce as sort of a consultant, but she was, trained in economics, did some work in the World Bank, stuff like that. She was actually, she was one of the original computer programmers, like back in the day when it was like punch cards and you like <laughs> stuck it into the IBM machine that was like the size yeah. of a wall. So um, wow. she doesn't know the first thing about technology now, but technically she can say on her resume, she was a programmer. How about that? Uh, you said we, so how many siblings? I have two older brothers. I was Ooh, the three, three, bo three boys. Okay. Three boys. I was the one getting beat up as a child, <laughs> <laughs> but you look like a pretty big guy. What are you, are you, I can't tell because of the camera, but are, are, you, are you all three pretty good size or what? Yeah, I'm six foot four. So Oof. I'm, I'm hey. not quite as big as my eldest brother, but I'm definitely, 
I'm definitely not small. And uh, was, uh, oh, was there like between wrestling in the living room, breaking stuff, breaking coffee tables? Was there, you know, do you guys? Yeah, get usually me. Bit? I mean, I was I was uh, four and a half and six years younger than my older brother, so I didn't get taller than them until it was sort of too late and it was socially unacceptable. I was <laughs> I was usually the one getting knocked around, but um, no, it was fun. It was, and I have three boys now too so it's really my wow. i get to go through what my parents went through and see what that's like do your parents have any uh you know granddaughters at all are there any girls in there anywhere there are yes my brothers my brothers each have a boy and a girl um, okay. So, okay but their first were all boys so we had four four boy grandchildren and my mom was convinced <laughs> that we were incapable of creating girls in my family but <laughs> yes, that's perfect. why I would, yeah, your mom's like, what in the hell is going on here? I want a granddaughter. Okay, that's pretty cool. So you got three boys, huh? Okay, yeah. how old are they? Uh, four and a half, two, and four months old. So Holy shit, it's busy at your house. It is busy. Three boys in a startup. It's uh, it's pretty chaotic. <laughs> Sleep is not my friend. <laughs> Woo, holy cow. Yeah, it's busy. Does your wife work too? Probably, I mean, I don't know how. Yeah, well, yeah, she works, but uh, you know, taking care of three kids is uh, harder than what, anything I'm doing. That's for sure. Um, she, she, um, you know, she. We met in graduate school. She uh, got a PhD and was working in kind of international development. She has put that down, similar to my mom. She put that down to to get the kids into school. Once the kids are back at school, she'll go back um and and you know battle her way back in but um but yeah she she always jokes like people say i don't work i'm working harder than you are and i'm like oh i, I know you are <laughs> no tough. doubt yeah no doubt i mean it's such a yeah. wonderful thing to be able to do that as a parent and stay home and do that right and it is a super super hard job i'm glad i didn't have to do it because i had you know we had four children ourselves and i just right. that, yeah. no, no uh so you met her when you were going over to oxford that's right. Yep. We met. Oh, so my wife is half French, half Polish, and she was studying. She was getting her PhD at Oxford. And I was over there. I was, I went over there convinced of three things. I was like, I'm going to be there for a year and I'm going to move back to the U S uh, I'm going to make sure that I come back single. Um, and <laughs> I, I went over there and I stuck around for two. I then moved to Australia and I found my wife. So I'm not very good at forward planning, but, uh, you know, you got to let life go where it goes, I guess. Now, hold on. You found her, but you met her there and then you moved to Australia. I want to make sure yep. I got that right. Okay. Yep. With, with her, with her. Yep. Yep. So I met okay. her there and she was, she had one more year left. So I ended up sticking around and doing a second degree. Um, and then, and then I also, while I was there, met my, my business partner, my co-founder, um, and it was Australian. And so then we moved to Australia in 2014. Um, so that's where the Australian, so your co-founder, your buddy that you met over there, uh, he was from Australia. That's where the Australian connection comes in. I see. Exactly. Exactly. Now let me, but I want to go back just for a second. So yeah, what are you like? Are you at like a little London pub or whatever? You see your wife over in the corner. You're like, yeah, hey, I, I need to know her. Like, what? how, how did you give me, give me the story? <laughs> no, it, it, we were, we were on uh, the rowing team together. So I, you know, I'm tall. I, I was a rower. Okay. Um, I had a, a failed, I wrote in, in college, uh, and then I, you know, sort of tried to row beyond and see if I could make it onto the Olympic team. That did not work out very well. Oh, really? Um, but you know what? It was fun. I gave it a crack and, and, uh, had some, had some fun. And, um, 
when I went over to Oxford, I decided they have a very famous uh, race against Cambridge every year. I see. And so I said, hey, this will be a good way to kind of end, end my career, as it were. Uh -huh. And so I joined the team and she happened to be on the team. And it wasn't until after the season that we um, kind of became something else. But um, yeah, that okay. was where we originally met. So she was kind of an athlete too. Now it's when you yeah. rode for Stanford, uh, did you guys win anything? Were you like number one, number two, did you win any championships when you were at Stanford? We were, we were, uh, my senior year, we were four tenths of a second away from the, from being national champions. Um, oh, we had, we, it, it hasn't, it's not the most storied program, but we had a pretty good <laughs> run while I was there. Two cool. Olympians, uh, an Olympic gold medalist I got to row with. And, um, wow. you know, my senior year, we lost to the university of Washington by about a foot. Uh, so damn. Was, okay. Uh, you probably had, you probably had some dreams about that. I'm sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> what could you have done differently? I mean, to be fair, we were, we were proud of the result. You know, we didn't, we didn't come in ranked second, so we sort of overperformed, but to be that okay. close here, you always think about it. <laughs> okay. Oh, I mean, you know what, you know what though? Usually guys like that, guys, girls like that, that end up in a situation like that. It just makes them even more competitive professionally later. I think. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, all right. So you you meet your friend there, your buddy, and uh, tell me, are you and him both like, hey, uh, let's be entrepreneurs, and I got an idea, and what you walk walk me through some of that? Go for it. Yeah. So, um, so I'll I'll, I'll rewind a little bit. So okay. you know, okay. as I said, I grew up in D.C., um, yeah. where as far as I can tell, there's three professions. You're a consultant, a lawyer, or a politician. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't till I went to Stanford that I sort of understood entrepreneurship to be a thing that like people did as a career. Gotcha. Um, but the time that I did it was, so I was there from 03 to 07. So basically right when Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, all of them were coming out of that area. Um, mm -hmm. Some of my, my university uh, mates, uh, you know, started some of those companies. And so that's where everyone went after graduation. There was a lot of brain power going to like making people addicted to the internet and, um, you know, hats off to them. They've changed the world and they've, they've made a ton of cash. I, I, I just didn't get it personally. I, it wasn't for me. So I moved back East and I worked in the energy space and I did renewable energy consulting projects because DC consulting, of course, um, and the best projects I did were the ones with startups. Like I worked with Ford, I worked with Honeywell, I worked with big companies, but the most fun were like the early stage. Um, because I saw people like doing yep. something that had impact every day, sometimes yeah. for the worse, but like they moved the needle every day. And you so got hooked. right there, right there, you got hooked. The bug exactly. I was like, yeah, yeah. How do I do that? <laughs> I want to do that. Um, <laughs> but I didn't know how. So I went to school and I met. Justin and he had started and sold businesses before, albeit in the finance space. Before um, he went to Oxford, before Oxford. Yep, yep. Uh, he had built and sold okay, okay, uh, some okay. funds management businesses okay. uh, to banks in Australia, and um, he right. was sort of having a similar inflection point in his career of like, is this like finance? Is this really what I want to do? Is this all there is? And so when we started chatting, you know, we a lot of it was me picking his brain about like, how did you start? How do you get from zero to one? Like. Okay. What was this process like? And, you know, so we, we, he knew what I was interested in. He knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial and he knew that I wanted it to be in like a big meaty space, you know, like I didn't okay. want, okay. you know, there's a few industries that in 500 years, food, water, energy, infrastructure, medicine, like these things kind of stand the test of time. 
yeah. in a way that like, you know, Snapchat does not. And <laughs> so like that was what I was sort of compelled by. That's the kind of thing that gets wrapped up in the morning. Okay. And so he moves back to Australia after my first year. Now, was he on the road team or how'd you meet him? Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Great. Got it. The rowing team that changed my life, apparently, uh, in a lot of ways, in more ways than one. Um, and so he had gone back to Australia, and I was sticking around doing my second degree, and he calls me up. You know, his father had grown up on a, on the land. And, you know, as he got back to Australia, he was sort of, you know, starting to connect more with that side. His, his father got sick, so he started getting more involved. And he's a numbers guy. He's a finance guy. And he's sitting around looking at his farm being like, where's the data? You know, like we just spent $200,000 on that, whatever fertilizer, like, did it work? Why did we do it? What's the ROI? (laughs) What's going on? And he got a lot of kind of like finger to the wind answers or things like, oh, "Oh, we did it because like Fred over the road did it. It's like, well, okay, what does that mean? So he calls me up and is like, do you want to, like, what do you think about this? And on the one hand, I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's, that's certainly a meaningful space. What do you think? What do you think about this? Meaning let's build some software around this. I mean, yeah. Yeah. He's like, well, what do you think about like this, this space and like getting involved? And I was kind of like, I mean, I'm from DC. I, I've never stepped. (laughs) I've never seen a cow. What? what (laughs) <laughs> he, he likes to joke that when I came to Australia, I couldn't tell the industry to count a sheep, um, which is not accurate, but he wasn't too far off. And so he was like, he, 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 you know, he was like, what do you think? And so I eventually get on a plane. He convinced me to get on a plane. As soon as I finished my degree, I fly down there. I spend three, uh, a couple weeks down there, three or four weeks. And I basically just live on his farm. And now the farm, follow, can I, yeah, yeah. Can, can I visualize the farm? Like how many acres is it? Are they growing? Are they growing? Are they, do they have he, cows? Yeah, he, he's got a fourth. Four, well, at the time, it was about a four thousand forty five hundred acre, um, mostly sheep and cattle. Um, you know, they okay. everything's a bit mixed, but they were kind of they're leading. Okay, okay. They no leading. crops. They they weren't doing any crops. They, they were doing crops, but not like that wasn't that's not a driver for them. Okay, a lot of it. Um, All right, cool. They, yeah, just growing right. right. for the animals. <laughs> And so I'm like following around this farm manager and, and I have no <laughs> idea what I'm looking at or what's going on, but I got really excited because I was like, wait, okay, this, this is real. There's like, there's something big here. And, and then I think what really like the next mental logical leap I took was I, I flew back to Sydney for a couple of days before I came back to the U S um, where he was living. Mm. And we started sort of as, as an entrepreneur does behind a, you know, a glass of whiskey or whatever it was, mm-hmm. you know, we start blue skying it and we start yeah. talking about, okay, cool. This is, this is a problem on farm. We can solve a lot of um, you know, issues for farmers by digitizing their production. But if we can actually do this at scale, at meaningful scale, now we can start to solve big problems beyond the farm, um, you know, and, and big systemic food problems, you know, as a, the, the, the three that, you know, three that we always refer to, it's like, we as a species, need to produce like 50% more food. We don't have any more land and we need to reduce the, you know, environmental impact of food production by 70%. How the hell can you do that if you don't have data at the source? Bingo. Let's just, let's just take a deep breath right there because that right, what you just said right there is a very nice summary of exactly what needs to happen. Right. We, we, you know, you're going to have an increase in population, increase in humans, a decrease in land, a decrease in resources, 
how do we how do we make all this work over time? Yeah. And if you don't have any data, how do you make decisions? Yeah. yeah great. Love love that summary. By the way, just for the listeners, this is 2014. Is this 2014, 2013? 2014. Okay. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Go 2014. Ahead. And you know, yeah, there's there's a bunch of them. You know, consumers want to have visibility into their food. How can you do that? Yeah. You know, yeah. Source governments want to have food security, right? There's a lot of issues you can solve if you can get this data at the source. And okay. particularly because you know, something that's kind of an entrepreneur fallacy, like for any huge problem, there's not one solution. There's lots of solutions. There's a lot of things that have to work in concert to make it happen. Um, but again, if you don't have data at the beginning, you can't even think about those problems. Right. So that's that I think is what as a, as a non-farmer in the business, probably 70% of our business has no connection to agriculture, you know. Right. Um, you know, that's what I think gets a lot of people out of bed in the morning is like, man, if we can do this, we get this right. And, and we're seeing this happen today. I mean, we're now, you know, if you fast forward to now, we actually are working with supply chains. We are working with supermarkets and retailers to, to verify, you know, what they're doing on the supply side. And, and really? All these things. So, really? Oh. You know, I know I'm jumping ahead, but like for a long time, it was the classic like, oh my God, how do we just make sure this business doesn't fail while talking about the blue sky? But now the blue sky is <laughs> here and we're actually doing some of that stuff, which is fun. Ah, that's very good. Okay, so when so when you get ready to leave there and you're you're in Sydney, yep. does he call you? Are you like, okay, let's do it? Like, let's do it. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna fly back. I'm gonna get my girlfriend, and I'm, I'm let's do it. <laughs> no, and she played a critical role. Basically, I was like, man, this is interesting. This is exciting. Like, I'm pretty. Uh, but then my my logical brain my uh, started thinking. Uh, how's that, how are we going to make this work? And I started thinking too too detailed about the logistics of it all. Uh, One problem I had was I was you know I was an ex student. I was in debt. I didn't really have. I couldn't really, um, and right. especially you know convincing my girlfriend at the time to quit her postdoc to like come to Australia. It's not like I could um, you know just live on ramen noodles. I, I there needed to be some money involved. And and um, Justin went to work sort of looking for some early angel kind of funding. Um, but the, my wife was the one who pushed me over the edge. Sorry, my girlfriend at the time, my now wife, um, she was the one who pushed me over the edge and she, she turned my brain off for a minute and was like, come on, this is an adventure. Let's do it. Like at the uh, time I was like, you know, I was interviewing at like Dropbox or something like that. She was like, <laughs> Dropbox will be there. Like you're being an idiot. Like, this is awesome. Let's like, let's roll the dice and see what happens. Let's go do cool. it. So she, she Very cool. Very cool. Uh, that's hey, that's great that she's been supported from the very beginning. Okay, yeah. awesome. All right, so the uh, you raise a little cash. You come up with the name AgriWeb. You moved to Australia. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. We had packed our bags. Uh, probably a, so. Just a couple months after I flew down there, we found uh, some funding, some sort of contingent funding of like, look, here's some cash to survive. Go, go tick some boxes, hit some milestones, and get a bit more. Now, neither um, one of you, neither one of you guys are coders or programmers, right? You're not, you're not full no. stack developers, right? Like what? No. <laughs> no, we. So that was my first job. That was the first thing I did. Um, was like, all right, we need to find somebody to build it. It was actually probably my first argument with my co-founder. He wanted to go to a dev shop, okay. and I philosophically and also through experience have just said, you know what, like. You can outsource anything that is ancillary to your core product, but you can't outsource your core product. Like it, you mm. just have to have it in house. So um, I was pretty adamant that we needed someone on the team. 
Okay. Um, I searched down every rabbit hole I could find and chased leads that mostly went nowhere. And then eventually stumbled upon this guy who became uh, our, our original co-founder, uh, technical co-founder. Okay. Now I could, I could talk to you at length about how that went completely sideways and almost blew up uh, business. Um, but he, but he did get us off the ground and he did get the first lines of code written that got us going. Um, it, it did not end well. Um, okay. Unfortunately, which I found, uh, I find more often than not, uh, founders have stories like that. Um, oh, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. They, did you get him off the cap table? Did you, did you, did you write him a check and it's like, Hey, you're- we did. It was contentious, uh, <laughs> it, and borderline litigious, but we, we, yeah. It happens. Actually, to be fair, it was proposed. You know, he was like, you know what? Clean break. I'm out. Let's let's not do this anymore. Okay, great. All right. All right. But he got you started. You got some stuff written. Okay. All right. And yeah. Okay. Very good. All right. And so let me ask you, let's do this real quick, but for the listeners. Now's probably a good time. And then we'll then we'll back up if we need to. Yeah. Give the give the listeners the three-minute agriweb elevator pitch so they know what the hell we're talking about go for it give it to them as it stands today and then then we can back up if we need to i just need to make sure that no one from our sales team hears this because i'm always terrible at this (laughs) um look agriweb i mean at its core it's an app that sits on a smartphone uh and is your farm basically in your pocket um and so it, it digitizes all of the management that you do on your property um and Basically, the the way we see the sort of progression is at first, it's just about how do we digitize your records, which uh, saves you a ton of time, um, but also solves for your compliance. So, you know, not as much in the U.S., but particularly around the world and anywhere in the U.S. where if you want to be anything more than a commodity person, you've got a big rigorous compliance need. Mm. And compliance is always a great pain point to start with. But that's just the beginning. Um, Once you have that, you now have a tool that you can use and you have data that you can use just just to drive decision making and actually improve the management of your property and actually look across your business and see where there's performance, where there's underperformance, where you can make cuts, where you're being inefficient. Um, And everyone always goes, oh, what's like the one thing you do? And it's like, well, it's not one thing. It really is business dependent and it's case by case. But um, we give, we empower farmers with the tools they need to actually look forward in their business. I think that's what separates us from a lot of, say, the competitors. The competitors are all just kind of data graveyards that look backwards. We actually take the data and have help them look forwards to make decisions around next season and next year to improve their business. Um, and so that's that's the simplest okay. core of what we do. So it's it's an app, sits on your phone, and then you've got a you know a web platform where you've got all your reports and your decision tools and your analytics. Where do um, where do where do you enter the data? Do you have to do you have to do you have somebody go on the on the on the website or on the on the the portal or whatever and enter information and then as the farmer you're just holding the phone later? No, right? You do it on the phone in the field. Oh, and that's oh. I think one of the key things like when we started Okay. Um, in 2014, there was no mobile apps. There was nothing that was cloud-based. Everything was on a desktop. And if you're a farmer, the, the, the typical pattern was they would scribble something in a red notebook sitting in their top pocket yeah. and they'd go home. And if they were really motivated, maybe they'd punch that into Excel. Mostly yes. they wouldn't. Right. Um, because come to the end of the day, the last thing you want to do is sit on a program and, and double enter data. So we said, well, hang on a minute. You've got a phone now, or at least in 2014, we were just on that cusp. You got a phone now, enter it there in real time as you're doing the work. 
Then you've got the information. Then when you go back and sit from the desktop, you can actually do planning. You can actually I make see. decisions. I see. Um, and I that's see. the kind of thing you go to the office for. Um, yeah. And, but, you know, manual entry is painful and we do, you know, a, there's a fair bit of manual entry involved. Now they were already doing it typically just in a notebook. We just made that on the smartphone. Um, but we now are getting a lot in uh, a lot more into the ecosystem. We have a lot of integrations and 2022 is going to be even more aggressive expansion in the integrations because the more that we can automate data capture, the more we can simplify that, the better the experience is. No doubt. No doubt. Because I was visualizing, I'm like, look, can't you just like, here's the, here's the place I buy all my supplies. Can you guys just like talk to the, my talk to them? Can't you just tie into my, my account and get my info so I don't have to enter anything? <laughs> yep. And, and that's exactly one of the cases uh, that we worked on uh, with some of our customers in Australia is linking them through to their supply, their, the people mm -hmm. they buy stuff from mm -hmm. um, and bringing the supply back. Um, so integrations is a huge part of, of what we're doing. Uh, we do a lot okay. of hardware integrations, we use satellite imaging integrations, we're even starting to integrate into sort of accounting platforms. You know, the more seamless experience, the better it is for the, for the user. What what are the biggest things it tells me? Uh, I'm overspending on feed. I'm overspending on supplies. I don't have enough land for this many cows. I'm going to run out of hay in 60 days. Yeah. I need to what like what what are some layman's terms, commoner commoner language things it tells me? Give, give it to me. <laughs> I, I think that man again, there's a lot of different things, but I think to to sum a bunch of issues into one bucket. What I would say is that probably the biggest reveal that first happens is we actually show people what their cost of production is. Cost like of typically in farming, it's like, how do I just, how do I make as much as humanly possible? How do I increase my yield as much as possible and just hope to maximize revenue? We're helping them maximize profit. I see. And okay. And in production, by the word production, you mean from the time I raise the little cow until all, it gets all the way through to the butcher shop and I get paid for the meat. What's my margin? Yep. Every, exactly. We're trying to maximize the margin. They've, you know, there's all this stuff going to, and it is amazing. It has always amazed me how poor visibility so many people have into that. They I just don't it. know. And in I the absence it. of that, what they're going to do is just, again, try and maximize volume. But if commodity prices crash, you know, they have no control over that. They have no mm -hmm. control over what's happening in the market. And mm -hmm. so you have a bad season and you're underwater. But if you've maximized that gross margin, now you've got buffer. And so mm -hmm. not only are you making way more money in the good seasons, you can actually weather the bad seasons. Where are the, where are the so again, there's a lot of ways you can do that. Like you said, it's about understanding your weight gain. It's about understanding, you know, uh, if you, you know, you'll say it's, if you're thinking about the animal side, um, you know, your bulls and your rams, which of them are performing, which of them are actually doing a good job, which of your cows are performing and doing a good job, um, you know, maximizing their weight gain or, or, you know, having high fertility. Like you said, it's about understanding the pasture management. You yep. know, am I optimizing my stocking rate? Am I, you know, improving season over season? Do I know which pastures are performing and which are not? So there's a lot of different things you could say depending on the type of business. But again, I feel like to, to, in my attempt to sum it up, it's really just about how do you understand everything that's going in there so you can optimize that? Because that's the one thing that you as a producer have control of. There's probably a million different things you could measure. I mean, it's probably endless, yeah. right? The different things you could measure. I mean, I, I, you could just go on and on and on and on with, with the different things um, you, can, you can measure. Does it give you GPS uh, location for your cows? Can I see where they're at? 
Uh, we, hey, that's not that's that's something that we will integrate with when the technology comes available. There's a bunch oh. of companies kind of working on that. Oh, I it's see. not actually to be fair. It's 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 available, but not at a price point that would be compelling to anyone. So there are companies, and we actually had conversations about integrating with them where then yeah if you get those collars to the point where people buy them then we can show exactly where it is on the map we can oh it doesn't okay okay so it's not financially feasible for every single cow to have a collar on right now yeah they're just a little too expensive cows can break pretty much anything so you really got to make it robust and strong it's got to deal with harsh conditions so it's a challenging uh hardware problem that said there are some companies that are really close and and we're we're, you know, working closely with them and we're ready to go whenever they are, you know, the integrations are, are huge for us. Um, it's yeah, I mean, the, buckets, the buckets of what we're looking at are, you know, fertility, weight gain, okay. treatments, feed, anything related to the pastures and pasture management. And I think another thing is, you know, we're not just about helping them, you know, understand it. We want to help drive them, uh, to improve it and drive them in a positive direction. You know, we're, we're trying to make it easier for farmers to, you know, go back to some of the techniques that there's a lot of buzzwords going around now, but they call it, you know, regenerative grazing and regenerative agriculture. What does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> what it means is, um, you know, you, you can think that you're an animal grower, you can think that you're a grass grower. And the reality is like grass is the key to your production, whether you're, well, or crops, you know, whether it's for animals or whether it's crops that you're selling as modern crops. Um, and that all comes from soil and soil has been getting degraded over decades and decades. And effectively through, you know, improvements or changes in your management, you can regenerate the soil, um, you know, create better soil biology, increase the amount of microbes in your soil, increase the amount of carbon, your soil, increase the amount of nitrogen in your soil, increase the water retention of your soil. And what this does is allow you to grow a whole lot more of whatever it is you're growing. If it's grass mm. for cows or sheep, or if it's, you know, crops for people, you want to grow as much of that as possible. Um, and it comes through, you know, several, a lot of different principles of, of regeneration. It's around um, having a lot of species diversity, having lots of different, oh. you know, not just, not, not just monoculture, but having lots of different species operating on a field. It's about mixing uh, crops and animals. Animals are, you know, create natural fertilizer. Mm -hmm. um, they, compact the, they compact the soil. Um, you know, you look back thousands of years ago and it used to be huge herds of grazing animals on grasslands being chased by predators and moving around. And mm -hmm. so you're trying to mimic that. So you get herds that are grazing aggressively one area and then you move them a lot frequently around different paddocks. Um, it's about having what are called cover crops, which means never leave your soil bare, always have something growing in there, always have root structure there, which, um, increases again, that microbial density and long story short, all of these different techniques make your soil better so you can grow more, but they also have impacts like increasing your water retention, uh, mm -hmm. making you more drought resistant, um, decreasing your pests. You create a lot of species diversity. And suddenly these pests um, go away because you've either got the pest natural predators that now exist in this little ecosystem, um, you know, in the case of weeds, right? Weeds exist because, like I said, uh, nature doesn't like monocultures. Nature wants lots of species diversity. So if you're just trying to grow monoculture, you're getting lots of weeds. Um, you know, over seasons of lots of species diversity, you can actually start to naturally see those weeds go away. That reduces your pesticide use. 
that reduces your fertilizer use. Uh, in some cases, can even eliminate it. Now your cost of production has gone down. You know, you're not using pesticides. You're not using fertilizers. You're you're uh, you're naturally increasing the weight. You're not using supplements because they're getting nutrition out of the out of the plants, out of the soil. So, um, no, this isn't. You know, farmers have been doing bits. That all of these things are these are not new terms. I think the phrase regenerative agriculture may be new, and it's starting. It's it can be very buzzwordy. It can be to dismiss. But the principles are just the way that, you know, people farm for a really long time, um, you know, until we sort of had labor shortages, people moved off the farms, World War II happened, that changed agriculture pretty dramatically. Um, but none of this is new. And a lot of these are principles farmers are already doing anyway, because it's the best way to farm. It's the most efficient way to farm. Um, but, you know, now they're, it didn't have the label previously, I guess. What, what are some of the first savings they see or what's the most eye-opening thing? Like when somebody starts using it, they're like, oh, wow. Like what's the most common? Holy shit. I can't believe I'm wasting that much money on X, Y, Z. What do they, what do they see right away? I mean, look, it's again, there's not it, it, it really, I hate to say this. I'm not dodging. It does depend on the operation, but I can okay. give you some great examples. Like, you know, we okay. had, we had a customer here in the U S one of our first customers um, they hop on board. It, it, it's that visibility. It's the data at your fingertips mm-hmm. and what you can do with that. And so they hop on board and they're a cattle operation. And every year since the dawn of time, because this is what you do, he's like, oh, you know, it, it gets to be winter. Uh, there's not a lot of forage out there. So we go and we buy $50,000, $80,000 worth of feed. We bring it in, we roll it yep. up. Yep. And he's in there and he's, he's finally looking at his farm on the phone and he's looking at what he's got on the ground and uh, the stocking rate. So basically how much uh, a mob of animals or a herd of animals is going to eat over a set period of time. Okay. And he's looking at it and he's like, I've got enough feed already. I don't need to winter feed like I've been doing. I actually have enough on the property, even now during winter. Why am I spending $80,000 a year for this stuff to sit out there and rot because they actually don't need it. And it was just, this, how, wow. this was, this was like day two. Like, how was oh, he? Yeah. How was he doing? How was he doing inventory before? Just he's just looking. He's just, just looking. At, yeah, that's <laughs> mostly how you go. You, you look out of the field. You go. <laughs> you know, in Australia, I remember that time wow. I went down to, to to my co-founder's farm. I'm sitting there, and he's looking out the field. And he's like, "I think we could fit 100 sheep in there for about a week." And I'm like, "Just okay, <laughs> sure." You know, you know, and, and, and don't get me wrong, like people are good at this. You know, they, yeah. they have experience. I'm not going to discredit their experience, but it's always better when you have data in your fingertips. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, no doubt. I mean, now farmers are pretty old school, like, hey, I've been doing it this way. My dad did it this way. I mean, I mean, you guys yeah. trying to if there's like a third generation farmer and you're going in there with some fancy technology trying to sell them something. I mean, that that's not an easy door to open sometimes, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, so this is an interesting topic. Uh, so yeah, yeah. But I would, I would say it's not that farmers are like that. I think it, I think humans are like that. And well, I think you true. find that across any industry change is hard. Change People is are hard. averse to change. Like yes. go try yes. to sell software to a doctor. Go yeah. try to sell software or a lawyer. to a lawyer or a, lawyer, or a cafe yeah. owner, right? Like there are, it's a, it's, I think it's actually the minority of people that are aggressive tech adopters. I think that change is hard and you got to prove value and you're right. Farmers have been burned. There's been bad tools out there. You know, um, signal coverage for digital tools has been really poor. So this is, this is new. And yeah, in the early days it was, you know, we had, we had to put in the hard yards, but 
I don't think it's that different from any industry that's been digitized over time. Um, you know, you've got to prove value. You start with your early adopters and then word of mouth builds. And, you know, looking at 2014 versus now in, in Australia, which is where we started, you know, obviously we're in lots of countries now, but looking, you know, just in Australia, like it's amazing how much attitudes has shifted because they've now seen the value. And, how about and that? And once they see the value, they're actually the most amazing promoters and really aggressive adopters. And um, so, you know, the industry is definitely changing. And um, you don't have you know. to give up. You don't you don't have to give any, give away any more free subscriptions just to get reviews now. Right. You get, <laughs> no. <it's> pre- <laughs> no. No. We didn't What's even charge subscriptions at first because no oh, right. software company in ag charged subscriptions. Oh, so we did this thing where we said, we'll give you a license. And then in 12 months time, like. We'll, we'll ease them onto a subscription plan. So in many ways, like we introduced at least our customers to uh, subscriptions. Now we're 100% subscription, right? Everything is. Um, but it was, you know, that was probably one of the biggest aversion to change was just like the business model side. Uh, so now it is, you sign it, you pay, do you pay by month, by size of farm? Like how, how's it work? How, what's yeah, the business it's, model look it's like? a monthly or a yearly subscription for some of our bigger customers, even multi-year subscriptions. Okay. Um, and it's based off the features. It's based off the, uh, you know, the value that's being created. It's not I based see. on size. Size is kind of weird, particularly when you're dealing with animals, because you could have, you know, 4,000 acres of super dense pasture like my co-founder had, or my uh, other co-founder who kind of joined the business a bit later, he grew up on 400,000 acres of desert. And so like, you can't charge by acre. They have similar, similar bit size business. Okay. Okay. Um, charging by animals, really challenging, you know, numbers fluctuate throughout the year, having you know, certainty on it. So we just say, look, you want this level of, of value. It's this, you want this level of value at this, et cetera. So it's, it's feature-based. So I can expect it to be a, a 1% expense line item on my PL or what, what can I expect? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it depends on what kind of business they're running, but you know, we, we try to sort of think in our heads around like, you know, okay, to pass the the sense check or the sanity check. Yeah. You don't want them spending more than say 1% of their top line, okay. um, but it, it really depends. And, and, you know, we believe that a lot of times we we're, I mean, we're saving them 10 times more than they're understood. Yeah, no. so right. 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 Understood. I mean, I would, I would assume that you have enough numbers now you've been doing it for long enough where you can just pull out case studies and say right yeah. here, this guy spent X amount, but he saved this. And so, you know, right. it was a win-win. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Now it's only as good as the data they put in. Right. So if they're sure. fucking up the data and they're not putting in the shit like they're supposed to, then, you know, they're not getting the results. <laughs> They're not getting the results. Absolutely. And, and when it's just an individual operator, that's, that's you know, sort of on them. You know, you want to get the value yeah. in the right way. Where this becomes a little bit more challenging is, is, you know, I alluded early on about the blue sky being now. In addition to selling to farmers, we've now moved up the value chain. So we now have um, a product for supply chains um, and a data aggregation product that uh, enables people or, 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 you know, whether retailers that are running specific branded products, integrated supply chains to aggregate their suppliers data. And they use that as the validation behind, you know, this premium product. And now the data entry becomes a lot more important because, you know, if they're getting bad data in, then that, that sort of, um, you know, erodes the value of what they're selling. So that's going to be, that's going to end up being a bigger revenue stream for you than selling to the farmers, I'm guessing. 
it, it is, but but it's symbiotic, right? We can't we can't yeah. do it without having an awesome farmer product. Mm. And um, you know, in our experience, what we've seen is that the easiest way to have those conversations is when we can go to a, a supply chain or go to a processor, we can go to a retailer and say, hey. 40% of your farms are already using us. Like, why don't we just get the rest on board and, and we can sort of land and expand. So, you know, a lot of great enterprise products start as an SMB product that gets you in the door and then you can worry about rolling it out of the whole business. Um, okay. Do you have any like super secret patented? I don't know. Is this, do you have competitors? Do you guys have this thing locked down? Talk to me about that. I mean, be arrogant to say we don't have competitors. We absolutely do. Um, you know, I would say that, as, as probably every founder says, but I would say that we're, we're, we're a bit different um, in that, one, we don't necessarily have a global competitor and we're operating on a global scale. Um, two, I think that nobody's operating not just on the farm, but beyond the farm uh, quite in the way that we are. Um, and three, I think that a lot of what people, a lot of what the competitive platform are doing is sort of a subset of the functionality they don't have the breadth and the and the full okay. functionality okay how um, big but there are definitely competitors out there and some of them are doing a really great job you know I, I don't mind that i think it keeps us on our toes and keeps us fresh but also you know anything that evangelizes how important data uh is to the future of agriculture is expanding the pie it's a great answer on the competitor question great answer i can tell you've answered that one before very good Hey, uh, how big is the company now? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you want to say, I know it's private, probably can't show revenues, but how about, I don't know, number of employees or something? Yeah, we've got about 65 people. And so 40 uh, and sort of the engineering team will always sort of live in the Australian team. Um, we've got about 10 to 12 in both the UK and in the US. And, and I, but the okay. US is, is our biggest growth market right now. That's that's where we're going to see headcount and probably the center of gravity of the company certainly from a revenue perspective is going to be shifting to the Northern hemisphere uh, pretty soon. And you just raised some more cash, right? What did you already raise yeah. a series B? At least that's what I see on LinkedIn. Yep. We raised a series B. Uh, we closed that basically right at the end of last year and announced at the beginning of this year, um, which is great. And, you know, very, very mission aligned, um, you know, two organizations tell us um, who is building a huge, um, aggregated ag business, and then the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which is an Australian government body focused on clean tech. And this is their first agricultural investment into clean tech. Um, and yeah, they, they're really, they've been great, uh, mission aligned, and it gives us um, you know, plenty of runway to get where we need to go. Are you, Justin, Justin's your co-founder's name? That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Are you and Justin? Now, you know, that Series B was 23 million. I don't know what your Series A was, but I'm going to assume... You're not in charge of the cap table anymore, technically. I don't know. You like I said, um, you and just you and Justin can't just do whatever you want anymore, can you? <laughs> no, no. We like we founders. The founders, because um, uh, the, the third founder as well, the one who joined late. Um, we do not have a majority of the equity. Um, okay. That said, it's it's not a you know it's not a situation where there's highly preference terms or there's okay voting rights. Like the okay. even the the other members of the board, the other investors, you know. There, you you have to get a, um, uh, you know, you have to get a, uh, a, a lot of agreement to get things through. Okay, good. Well, a lot of you know people that listen to this podcast, you know, a lot of early entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs, they always ask me, you know, how long should I maintain control? When should I raise cash? What happens when I do give up control, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all great answers that we could talk about for another three hours. <laughs> I've got strong feelings on that. That's for sure. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. What's your what's your quick answer to how uh, would you do anything differently? Let me ask the question that way. Would you do anything differently now, knowing what you know about funding or the business in general? Uh, about raising cash and when to give up control. Oh yeah, I do. Uh, I certainly do do things differently. I mean, I think that the the main thing I would say to early stage entrepreneurs is like know why you're funding and be really careful about, you know, who you're pulling that money from. Like, I think that people think because I don't know, VCs are really loud and they have, you know, great marketing teams. Like people think that the only way to build a business is through VC funding, um, which is not true. Um, there's lots of alternative funding that you can get. Um, and there's also uh, customers who are the best form of funding of all time. Um, and two is like, you don't, you don't have to follow this path, you know, raise money when you need money to step on the accelerator, have a specific purpose. And that's probably what the one thing I would change. I actually think, you know, Justin, particularly coming from finance, did a phenomenal job of understanding, you know, the term sheets, avoiding any like, you know, mm. miserable terms, putting us in a really safe and protected position with a lot of uh, control. So he did a phenomenal mm. job there. If there was one thing that I would point the finger at myself on, um, it was, you know, not being deliberate enough, being like, we need money to go hire people and do things, but be really explicit about it. You're giving away your company, know why you're doing it. Mm. Mm, great point. Okay. Great point. I got I want to ask you a couple of questions before we run out of time that are a little more, a little, little, little more fun. Ooh, yeah. Is your wife like, is she a vegetarian? <laughs> uh, we don't eat a ton of meat, uh, in our are you, oh, I was joking. I was joking around. Are you serious? Uh, yeah. Uh, we're not, we're not vegetarian. Uh, but we don't actually eat a ton of meat. I think that, um, you know, I think we probably eat too much meat as a species. And, and I don't think that contradicts with anything I'm doing. I think that, um, you know, it's part of, it's part of the world and, um, you know, to solve big problems, you need to have a lot of solutions. And one of those solutions is let's do what we're doing, but do it better. Okay. I was wondering if you had any friends that come over for dinner and they're like, well, now what business are you, what business are you in? Oh, you help farmers raise more cows. Okay, cool. We're vegetarians. I wonder if that, wonder if that ever we got, came we up. Got, we, we have a vegan in the company who works for the company. Really? Yeah. Okay. Secretly they're like doing something like blow up the code. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me ask you a couple more questions. Um, you don't have any animal activist bullshit. Nobody's, nobody's ever like called you and be like, why are you guys helping these farmers? You haven't had that. We get a lot of, we get not a lot. I mean, we definitely see that stuff on social media and, you know, I think we need to do a better job of, of, you know, probably stating our position. You know, we, we as a business are very focused on sustainability. We're very focused on animal welfare, reducing, you know, the usage, like, yes, at the end of the day, as long as people eat meat, there is a negative outcome for this animal. But I think that it, you know, until society entirely, changes the way it operates. And until you can actually achieve the scale out of alternatives, it probably won't be achieved for multiple decades. Uh, you probably need to do something to, you know, solve the problem in the best way that you can right now. And I, I don't have a problem. I've come from a, you know, environmental background. That's what I got my master's degree in. I worked in renewable energy previous to, to this. And I, I think those two things, um, you know, I, I believe that that sits perfectly uh, in how I view the world and how we need to solve these kind of problems. I'll just tell the listeners, I'll step out there and confess like, look, Hey, if you're vegetarian, that's cool. Great. Awesome. Good yeah. for you. I don't, I don't have a problem with it, but I personally like to eat meat. So, you know, don't give me a hard time for eating my steak and I won't give you a hard time for not eating it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, in, in, um, 
Exactly. Right. If people want to, people want to reduce their meat consumption or eliminate entirely. That's great. Awesome. Go do that. But it's going to take a long time for the entire world to do that. So while we have a, a world that relies on meat production, let's make it the best version of it we can. Speaking of the social media and being more, you, you mentioned saying, yeah, maybe we should, we should be more clear on social media. What are your thoughts on these CEOs? Since you are a CEO of a business, are these, some of these CEOs are stepping out on social media about whatever topic and, you know, trying to take a position on this, you know, whatever the, whatever the debate is, whatever the social debate is of the month. Right. I mean, you pick your title. It don't matter. Some, yeah. some, some executives step out there, you know, if, if the argument of the month is whether or not yellow is better than purple, or, you know, they're, they're, Raising the purple flag and saying, I love purple or whatever, whatever the debate is, you know? Yeah. Well, what are your thoughts on, on CEOs stepping out like that on things? I mean, <laughs> I think that we as people probably like care too much about what like celebrities think about things. <laughs> like if they're stepping out and talking about something that they have a very particular domain expertise in, awesome. I'll give them a listen. But otherwise, like who gives a crap? <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, a lot of times they're doing it to to raise their own personal brand, raise uh, exactly stir the pot. Exactly. And get, yeah. You know, there's no such thing as bad press, right? So stir the pot, you get some views, you get some clicks. People know who you are. There's value in that. But um, you know, are they doing it for um, you know with good intent? Probably not always. <laughs> and so probably not most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's, I think it's a little silly, but I also would say like, you know, stop clicking on it and there won't create, you won't create an incentive for that kind of stuff to happen. <laughs> Great point. I never thought, I never, I never thought of that. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. I really don't give a shit what any actor or athlete thinks about anything. I just like, don't please, yeah. no, just please just, can you just like do yeah. what you're supposed to just do? I'll do my job and make sure I run a good recruiting firm and, and yeah. I won't bother you with my views and you just make the movie so that I can be entertained. That's all I need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, uh, I got, I got too much on my plate to be opining on like the latest, you know, tweet from somebody. Tweet, right. How about this one? I'm going to ask you this too, uh, on, on the resources and the space and the planet mm -hmm. we live on, you know, uh, I've, I've seen some re really good stuff and it's getting uh, more and more uh, press lately. Just, yeah, what happens when there's not enough land for cows to feed on to process enough cheeseburgers for all the fast food restaurants on the planet? Now, I, maybe that's a hundred years from now. I, I don't even know. I'm sure. I'm sure people have run math on this. I, I have no idea. Um, yeah, what happens then? <laughs> what What happens? I mean. You know, it's really easy to be negative and get depressed now, particularly if you spend too much time right. watching the news. Um, but I think what gets lost in all that, because it doesn't generate the clicks, is all um, the really positive stuff that is happening. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, mm -hmm. for some huge global problem like, you know, how do we feed 10 million people in 30 years? Like it's going to be hundreds of different solutions that are going to, that are going to solve it. It's not one thing. There's no panacea. There's no one company that's going to come in and be the savior. And so, you know, the answer is a lot of different things, right? I was talking earlier about how we can regenerate soils. So you don't need more land. You can get way more out of the land we've already got by just returning it 
uh, back to the more productive state that it used to be in. You know, there's different kinds of alternative foods that people are looking at. There's, you know, ways that you can harvest things, you know, from the ocean. There's, there's going to be a million different things that happen. And so, you know, at being an entrepreneur, I guess you have to be a little bit of a natural optimist. And so I'll be optimistic in the in human ingenuity's ability to find all kinds of alternative solutions that are probably location dependent. You know, what works over here may not work in different countries, different continents, different regions, different cities. Um, and so different people will find the things that work in their world. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot of problems and I, I also succumb to getting pretty down on it sometimes, but I I have to believe that we as a species um, are smart enough to figure figure out some solutions. Okay, great answer. Three more quick questions. I know we're almost out of time. Awesome. Do you want to spend 30 minutes talking about the lockdown that Australia is in and give us all your opinions <laughs> in that? <laughs> I dodged a bullet on that one. I When I was in Australia, there was like, you wouldn't have known there was a pandemic other than the fact that you couldn't leave the country. Everything was open. There was no oh. out there. And then uh, right. the moment I left, Sydney got locked down. It was tough. You know, we have 40, 40 people down there and uh, uh, it was really tough and, and they're coming yeah. out of it now. So I'm happy to see. Oh, they are. Oh, oh, are they, uh, are they yeah. loosening up? I haven't really, I haven't noticed. The, okay. So yeah, they've up. even, they've even declared the borders open. So it's, it, they finally, oh. it, but it was tough. It was a couple months of some sad faces on zoom and some people that were struggling <laughs> with, uh, you know, the mental health side. I saw some things. I'm like, holy shit, man. Yeah. You can't even go, you can't go to the bar. If you can't go to the pub, then I don't know. I'd be, I'd be in bad shape. <laughs> That's tough for Australia. Uh, Dave, the last two questions. If um, if you could call the young man flying over to Oxford, in, you know, you just graduated Stanford, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. What, yeah. What would you tell him, knowing what you you know now and what you've learned? What would you tell that young man? Um. So there's two things. One from like a from like a personal perspective, um, you know, it would it would be something along the lines of like you know, don't overthink it. Just, just go, just do it. Just let, let, let life happen to you. And, and don't, you know, don't put up barriers. I think that was something I struggled with a long time is, is trying to be too rational about things as opposed to just jumping in and figuring it out. Okay. Um, and the second thing I would say, which is sort of be the business advice um, would be focus. Like we, we, you know, definitely almost blew up this company multiple times because we were unable to just really, focus in and, and know that the expansion would happen. And we tried to do too many things at once. And that's something I see all the time, uh, blow up companies. So that would probably be my business advice. Just be focus, focus, focus. Good stuff. Last question. If you had to put your core purpose in life right now, now let's, let's, let's separate your boys and your wife. So let's set that aside for a second. Okay. Yeah. Aside from your, your wife and sons, what is Kevin's core purpose oh gosh that's tough um you know what what gets me going is doing things that matter doing things for real people and i guess maybe as like a contrast to it is like you don't have to take over the world you don't have to disrupt everything you don't have to be a unicorn just like make a difference and do something that's meaningful to people. And that process is really exciting for me. Um, mm. And, you know, we'll never be the next hundred billion dollar valuation company, but like, I think what we're doing matters. I, I see it in our customers every day. 
um, and I see the impact that we can have. And um, yeah, that that's my purpose to to do something that matters. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time.